I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman. I am really honored to be joined today by Ishmael Bea. He's the Syrian Leonian, let me try that again is the Sierra Leonean and American author of the novel Radiance of Tomorrow and the memoir A Long Way Gone, which was a number one New York Times bestseller and has been published in more than 40 languages. A UNICEF ambassador and advocate for children affected by war, Bea's latest novel is called Small Family. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. This book is so beautiful and one of the first things that struck me in meeting um these five characters you write about who make up this little family um is that none of them have backstories that the past traumas don't even feel like they need to be discussed it's just all implied tell me about that decision well you know I, I believe that, you know, uh, firstly, I think when people are struggling and these characters sort of live in the edges of society, and I think people who are at the bottom of any uh, stratification of society don't necessarily go around thinking about their background or their mm-hmm. past. You know, they kind of want to survive. They kind of want to do things in the immediate period of their lives so that they can deal with what's coming. But equally importantly, I believe that as human beings, uh, when I was thinking about how I did their characters, and I thought it would be too heavy-handed to have all of their backstory. But I also know that uh, how we behave in the present says a lot about our past. So if I was to sharpen their behavior in the present, uh, you will be able to understand their past without me having to give it to you. And also, when I write, I trust in the intelligence of my readers to draw some imaginative conclusions about certain things without me kind of tying it up for them. Yes. And what has been really interesting is that when some people read it and I ask them, uh, you know, did you mind? And they say, no, because like, what would you think Eliman, for example, what do you think his background was? 
And most people usually think what I had thought when I was writing Elimar, by the fact that he reads a book when they're trying to struggle and he reads it with ease, says a lot about how he grew up and who he is. So I just find it, it was a more useful technique to get to the story itself rather than giving you all that. But that's what people are used to traditionally. Give me the backstory and right. then I'll feel empathy for the character. But I think you can feel empathy for the character just in how they behave in the present. You know? Absolutely. And, and the, the novel is so much in the present. And as you were saying, I mean, so much of it is about survival. And I imagine that um, when that's the case, there is no past or future. There's just now. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Um, tell me a little bit about the family and how they communicate because they, they, they're like, they could pull off a heist in some other, <laughs> in some <laughs> other novel, but, um, they're so clever. Um, and they also, fe I feel like they really are generous with each other and each other's emotions. So tell me all about that. Well, when I was creating them, these five characters in Little Family, I was trying to look at, first of all, not to have the traditional sense of family in the sense that if you have been ostracized from various ideas of family, when you find the people who are kind of your heart connection, understand certain value more system, your closeness is going to be much deeper than even your blood relations, right? Mm -hmm. And therein lies the equity itself of how you treat each other. You know, you're going to, because you've already had mistakes of how you've been part of family. So you cannot come prepared. Right. So I brought these characters together who have disbelieved in belonging to something, but then they found that each other and this became their new family. And they also have to be useful to each other. So um, the way they also have to survive was not to show people that they are together because they did right. not want to be found. And therein, I wanted to build a sort of um, a communication mechanism so it's not obvious to the, the naked human eye or the person who's perhaps naive about certain things looking at them would not know that they're together, but they'll be able to communicate. So they communicate through a series of whistles, hand signals, and you know movements, walking left or right, or certain ways that they've all uh, talked about mm -hmm. and determined this is how they, what they will do. You also realize that they're very deep observers of human beings so because they need that to survive. And this was really important to me because often um, intelligence is ascribed to people who are, are maybe at the top of society in terms of uh, socioeconomic status. But intelligence is universal. It belongs to everyone. It, just because you're not in a certain space doesn't mean that you're not as dangerous. So I wanted to show their intelligence even in the space that seemed broken. Yeah, um, that you require intelligence to actually more so to live in broken places <laughs> than when you live in functionality because other people can think for you, you know. <laughs> and and it's one of the verbs I was struck by in this book is they used the word corrupt to mean to steal. <laughs> and that to me says so much about the setting. <laughs> Absolutely, because, you know, I, they're trying to have this conversation you know, the, the little family will go to this place um, where uh, it's called a night market, whereas usually where in the, in the book, I brought all these characters who are at the edge of society who come in at night to exercise a true form of freedom or just to be around each other without having to worry so much. Mm -hmm. It's a place for them to relax, but it's also a place where they have social commentary on 
society of what's going on. They listen to radio, they watch grainy televisions, they do all kinds of stuff. So the conversation really comes about the fact that they're thinking, listen, in, in, in this unknown country that they live in, um, when politicians steal, they are considered to be corrupt, but if they steal a cup of rice to be able to survive, they're seen as thieves. And so they're basically taking their own agency and yes. again, fairness, and be like, well, we will no longer be called thieves because actually we are taking something to live, but people are taking who may not need it. So then it becomes a new word added to their language, which is that, hey, I corrupted that watch or I corrupted that bread, <laughs> you know. And, <laughs> and there, there's a great line where Elamine says something like, they were already on the crooked path of history, so why walk straight? Yeah, it's a question they're asking. If you grew up, it's, it's about if you grew up in an environment where things are broken, it, it takes a certain kind of um, uh, moral foundation to be able to do the right thing, right? Because every time you do it, you have a lot of people who are not doing it. So then you become actually uh, broken by by the uh, by that sort of idea that we are each other's keepers. If that doesn't exist, and you try to practice it, you become the odd one out. Yeah. But at the same time, they they, they argue the fact that, well, by participating in this, aren't we foddering this very idea that we have ostracized ourselves in society from by doing so? So they kind of explore <laughs> whether that question is, yeah. you know, what, how you function in this uh, place where you have competing ideologies um, of who you are and as you're forming yourself and what, how, how do you really, is there a win? If it is, what is the shape of it? You know, right. and what does it say about who you are as a person? Mm -hmm. come out of Tell me a little bit about um, the decision to not name the country that they live in. Well, I, you know, I wrote this book in various countries and in various capital cities, mostly on the African continent, you know, but also even here in the United States. Um, so for me, it was more that if I name the country it limited the story mm -hmm. because i feel that the characterization and these characters versions of them exist everywhere in the world right um for example right now in COVID times everybody has had to form their own little family That's to stay indoors sure. whether it's you and one person or you and your dog or whatever it is <laughs> you've had to live with so you have to create that bond to survive and i felt mm -hmm. that this is a very essential human activity that we do when we are faced with circumstances beyond our imagination, right? We, we create a bond or we seek something somewhere. And I felt like if I'd named the specific place, and again, the reader's imaginative capacity only stays there. Right. But for example, some people have thought, oh, this could be in Zimbabwe, or some people have thought right. that this could be in Baltimore, and some people have thought, so everybody's sort of had their own. Uh, remembrance of similar situations, which then makes the story theirs. Because that's also for me when I write, I want to hand over the story to the reader so it becomes theirs, not just to invite them into it and then they leave, you know. Mm. So <laughs> that's kind of the, the technique. Yeah. Tell me about this family. Their One of their survival skills is their invisibility. Mm. Tell me about how that liberates them. Well, when you're invisible in any structure, uh, then people don't expect anything from you. 
So then you have all the space to be free. <laughs> people don't, you know, people don't think about it that way. Those are the top in power. Think that, you know, you're at the bottom. You don't have the intelligence. You don't even have the ears to hear certain things. So they will speak around you about really, you know, private information or important information right. that they may not think you have the capacity to actually understand, but yet you're there, you know? So this is their power. Their invisibility becomes their power in the sense that they pay so much greater attention to things Nobody expects anything from them. So they are right. left alone most of the time <laughs> to do what they want to do. Yes. And, and this larger society thinks of them as incapable of doing anything. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so they really uh, can operate. Which also questions what society is that, are you really free when society pays attention to you and restrict every single natural impulse that you have? Right. Or are you free when society ignores you so you can then exercise those natural impulses to do whatever you want? So, and the, but there's a moment where Kudimata, uh, one of the main character, is trying to uh, befriend the, the, um, the beautiful people who are the affluent members of the society they've ostracized themselves from. Yes. And you see how she has to put, on, put down that cloak of invisibility to be able to function in their world, you know, and how that made her feel exposed to certain, in a certain way uh, as she was learning to embrace this new life, you know. Absolutely. Um, you do such a good job of writing about how Kuri feels scared about looking too beautiful, <laughs> mm. revealing her body or her clothes and, and her beautiful hair and um, leaving herself open to, to danger. Mm. You know, this, 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 this specific character, really, I wanted to... Um, you know, I've witnessed moments, you know, uh, that, that really um, pushed for me to write this character the way I did, um, where generally speaking, and this applies anywhere in the world, uh, most women, young girls or women are always tied between, uh, you know, taking care of those they love and themselves. And oftentimes they take care of those they love and forget themselves. Mm. So when I was writing this character, I was going to write a character that would not do that because I have two daughters. And I don't want them to grow up to be those kinds of women who would make that decision. If anything, choose yourself as a woman, because the word is so masculine in every way you think of it, that you shouldn't have the burden of <laughs> fathering that space for the masculine behavior in a way. And I remember my daughter was about a year and a half old. We were in, in, in Senegal and we're on a boat and these guys who are sitting away from us were saying that we know she's a girl, but why don't they pierce her ears? So we know she's a girl. And that really upset me a lot. And that fell into the writing of the character where I believe that the man doesn't have absolutely no space to decide how a woman expresses right. herself in any way, you know? And so that really fed into me wanting to write this character as this, as this young woman who will become herself unapologetically. Mm -hmm. uh, in her own way and 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 so you know uh and which is really important to me to see and to to change the way even men look at but it was a difficult character for me to write obviously i'm not a woman so uh, <laughs> but i had to <laughs> and and i knew that i had my own you know um blind spots perhaps even the grand canyon as a man <laughs> you know <laughs> And so I wanted to really, uh, so I had to learn a lot. I had to consult uh, women in my life. My wife, for example, who's my first reader and my editor who's a woman yeah. to really be harsh with me 
Uh, I had to to even learn about how to speak about a piece of clothing for a woman. Mm-hmm. Because when a woman wears something, there's a way she feels it. As opposed to man, we are functional, most of us. We wear functional clothes. We don't, we like it, but it's not going to make us feel a certain way. You know what I mean? Right. Most men don't. And not all, but most men don't. But for a woman, some it, exceptions, but <laughs> some exceptions, yes. But there, for, for a woman, it, it means a lot more. So I wanted to get all those layers intact. So I had to also, you know, remove my own masculine POV to be able to do that. Yeah. And, and it's, I, it's a testament, I, I suppose, to her intelligence and charm that she is able to pass, quote unquote, with, with these more well-off youth. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, but that's also the other thing, right? If you are at the bottom of, or you've removed from any established order, uh, you've had, you have a dual duality that most people don't have, right? The duality being that you've lived in that established order and you enter it and leave it. Whereas the people who are at the top of it only stays there. So they have one POV, but you can actually go between the two worlds very quickly. And that requires a certain level of intelligence, a certain level of, uh, uh, reorganizing your morals and kind mm-hmm. of shifting uh, between two words, you know, and having that capacity, that multifacetedness of who you are, you know, in a way. So I really wanted this character to be that and to master it so well that she functions in either word, but she carries each within her, you know. Yeah, and even even the logistical concerns for her. Um, you do so well like there there is a place where she needs to keep her more fancy clothing or mm. there's there are places where she needs to sleep at night so that she can't so that her her family doesn't see her in in disguise absolutely you know there's an in between where she has to you know remove the mask of one world to enter the other you know uh, fully and she always does this back and forth, and which is, can be exhausting for her, but slowly she begins to find out how she wants to live, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the opening of the book, I mentioned that uh, when she's at the market, that every day she has to decide how to remain suspended between <laughs> being useful or being destructive, right? So you kind of see that play out in the entire book where she's making those choices but always to remain in between. So she also has the freedom because that's what really the, question, the, the concept of freedom is, is choice. Yeah. You know, the ability to make the choices you want. You know. and, and some of her freedom also comes from just carrying a knife with her. Yes, I mean, there is, <laughs> she's a realist in that sense. Yeah, you know, absolutely. She's not a naive because her world, she's seen things, you know, so she doesn't have, for example, the friends that she made with the beautiful people with Mawa. Mawa is fierce in her own way. She has her own personality. She'll cross the street without looking and stop the cars. <laughs> um, but she's also um, naive in some sense because she cannot see certain things. Right. She cannot see how wounded the world is in a lot of ways, which she brings to the table. So she sees certain things. She sees menace in men in a way that Mawa may not necessarily mm-hmm. see because she has a kind of naivety but she's grown up in being protected. You know, life hasn't really uh, broken her in the way that he has broken Kodimata. 
But Kudimata is able to put that on hold, but also still function in their order even better than Mawa because she can see those things. Right. I was struck by how, if you think holistically about the novel, there wasn't that much violence in it. There was some, but the threat of it was there all the time. Well, I mean, what I was trying to really imply is that, you know, everywhere you live, particularly if you live on the margins of society, there's always a background of something that's not good. But that background doesn't stop you, you know. Again, you're not walking around and thinking, oh, yeah, it's so dangerous. Here. Oh, yeah, it's dangerous. Here. You know it's dangerous. So it no longer becomes an obsession. It becomes that this is a situation, mm-hmm. but how do I live through it? It's kind of what's going on in COVID now. We're all in lockdown. If you spend your day thinking, that, oh, there's a COVID out there, there's a, you know, there's something out there, you're going to drive yourself crazy, you know. So basically, you get on with your life, try to do certain things within the limit of what's going on, right? So in a way, I wanted these people who live in environments that uh, have the backdrop of something really massive and uh, not necessarily thinking about it all the time. They're aware of it, but they are not. It's not an obsession because they have to live. You know, you have to continue living regardless of the situation, you know. Yeah. And even just, I was struck by the descriptions of food because food is a primary front and center thing in their lives um, when they're trying to survive. Mm. But, you know, as as in everybody's life, food is very... That's true too, especially in COVID. Exactly. Food is instrumental. Food is also says a lot about who you are and people don't realize it. It says a lot about your upbringing. It says a lot about, you know, uh, what part of society you are in. You know, you find certain people who think McDonald's is a restaurant. That kind of gives you the backstory of who they are, right? So, you know, so I wanted to play, but in this particular context, because it's an unnamed country that has a colonial burden, it also comes with the heritage of uh, this idea of supremacy of values or thinking in the sense that if you go to certain restaurants in your country, you cannot have the, your own food. You have to have foreign food to seem sophisticated. So this is also a question I wanted to explore because this is a very real thing that happens in most, most colonial places. If you were to go to Italy, you would not be giving Sierra Leonean food all over Italy right. and asked to, if you want pasta, then people have to fight you for it. You know, <laughs> that, you know, you know that would never happen. But on the flip side, it happens. And so I wanted to explore what does it say about the very people that are playing in this, even if they're sophisticated and smart and intelligent, what does it say about their intelligence? How, you know, how does it fall short? You know, or what are their blind spots? Or what have they not thought about it? And so I wanted to explore this. You know, but even within the context of food itself, where Kudimata used to eat before is very different. Yes. From where you eat. She even makes fun of the descriptions on the on the menu about this and that because she was saying that where she eats, if you talk about food this way, they would think you're a comedian because you, like, <laughs> the food is either the food is either good or it's not good. <laughs> you, know, right. you don't have to make all these gymnastics about it, you know. Tell me a little bit about what you've been reading. Um, I'm always reading. When I'm writing a novel, I usually don't read because I don't want to be influenced by anything. So, mm-hmm. But uh, besides that, I always, you know, when I used to teach writing and my students would ask me, how can I be a, a, a good writer? Or some of them would say, how can I be a famous writer? And I would say, 
you know, how many books did you read this month? And they would say, well, I'm not reading it. And I said, well, you know, you, you, you're not going to be a good writer. Oh, mm -hmm. If you're not reading, you have to be more of a reader than a writer. If it's a book. So I read a lot. Um, what I've, I've been rereading a lot of few things that I've read before, you know, in these times just to, to you know, I've gone back to read a lot of Abba Camus, who is one of my favorite writers. Um, I've been very reading, relevant uh, here. <laughs> absolutely, I know. Oh I was actually told by a bookstore that uh, most people have uh, 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 been buying the plague that they, you know, yeah. about Camus, the plague, like everything's just flying on the chest, I guess. You know, <laughs> so years later, I still, you know, so this, this is why reading is important. You know? Yes. So I've been reading some of these things. I've been reading also Nagib Mahfouz, who's an Egyptian writer. Uh, I wrote Children of the Alley and various other works, so I've been reading some of that. Um, there is a Zimbabwean writer that I've been reading as well. Uh, his name is, um, he wrote uh, The House of Hunger, and his name is, uh, oh, his name just escaped me. I, I will look it up. <laughs> Last name, I think, is called, uh, not Sisindangaren, but not Nervous Conditions. Um, it's another one. I can't remember his name somewhere. It just escaped me. But anyway, that, that happens. And I've also been uh, reading a lot of uh, Italo Calvino, who was an Italian writer as well, sort of yeah. magical realism, things like that. Yeah. So, and Edwidge Danticat, who's also one of my favorite Asian writers. So I've been rereading a bunch of stuff, you know, and there are some other things that are on the horizon coming out that I'm looking forward to reading as well. So. That's great. Perfect. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.